This morning as we continue our journey through God's Word, book by book, looking at the story of salvation God is writing in history, we come to what is arguably the most important book in the Old Testament. Now, if you've been around for the last couple weeks through this series, or if you're in our community groups, uh, some of you are immediately thinking, now wait a minute, just four weeks ago, didn't we hear that Genesis was the most important book in the Old Testament? What are you, what are you trying to pull on us here? And uh, let me just say that it is certainly true that Genesis is an essential book for uh, theology and, and living as a Christian. And uh, part of the reason for that is that in, this, in that book you have there not only the explanation for how all things began, but you also have uh, in, in very small and short form explanation of how things will go and even how things will end. You have the setup for all of the Bible storyline. In fact, the end of the book, Revelation, even echoing the beginning, Genesis, in terms of how God will wrap up all things. Nevertheless, we should think of Genesis as that solid rocky foundation upon which the mountain of Deuteronomy stands. For from this point in the, the history of God's people, all of God's people, all of the prophets, all of those that would write, all of the kings will look back and live in light of the shadow of the mountaintop of Deuteronomy. All of the prophets and their condemnation of Israel will key off the essential standard, the plumb line, as it were, of what we see in Deuteronomy and how God's people should live. Jesus himself coming, taking on flesh, living among us as the Lord and Savior, quoted from the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book in the Old Testament. So then what is Deuteronomy all about? If it's such an important book in the Bible, what is it about in truth? It is three final sermons that Moses gave the people of Israel before they crossed into the promised land of Canaan. And hopefully you'll remember how we arrived at this point this morning looking at Deuteronomy. You will remember from the beginning, though, being created good and giving every blessing from God, humanity rebelled against God's rule and doubted His good word. And so God responded both in judgment and in mercy. In judgment by because of their sin, making explicit the break that occurred between God's fellowship with His good creation and with their broken fellowship with one another and with all of creation. And yet also, He expressed mercy in saying, one day I will take care of this problem. He gave the promise, the very first promise, that one day Christ would come in saying that one day the serpent who led humanity to sin would be forever crushed, His power defeated by a son that He would provide through the woman Eve. God showed himself faithful to begin to move in that direction, the salvation of humanity. And God very specifically moved in power to call Abraham to himself, calling a man seemingly out of nowhere, out of paganism to worship him and enter into a gracious covenant with him, whereby God told Abraham, I will bless you and I will bless you in such a way and with such magnitude that the blessing you have on your life will in fact overflow to all the nations of the earth. And I will do this, Abraham, by first giving you a son. And from that son will come many descendants upon which will number a nation. In fact, he says, eventually, Abraham, if you could go outside and count the stars, then you will know how many descendants you will have. If you could go out to the beach and pick up the grains of sand and number them, you would know the number of your descendants. And so in the book of Exodus, we see God being faithful to bring about that promise. And we see this, what starts as a large family of 70, grow to, in fact, a nation of 12 tribes comprising around 2 million people. 
And yet, over and over again, humanity's sinfulness threatened the fulfillment of the promises. And yet God showed himself faithful to his promises, preserving his people. To the point of leading them out of their captivity in Egypt to the land that God promised Abraham his descendants would have. And yet as they stood ready to overtake it, God's people Israel committed in many ways the exact same sin as that first man did. They refused to submit to God's lordship and they doubted his word. God said, go in and take possession of the land that I'm going to give you. And they said, no, I don't think so. Why not? Because we don't think you're going to really be with us. I mean, look at those guys in there. Who wants to go up against them? There's already people living there. They're going to kill us. They're going to, they're going to carry off our kids. No way. Don't you, don't you trust me? Haven't you seen all that I've done for you already? No, we don't. And so for the remainder of the book of Exodus and on into Leviticus, what we see is God bringing judgment upon that generation, leading them, as it were, in circles through the wilderness until all of them died off, disinheriting them from the covenant, as it were. And yet God showed mercy. God showed mercy in not completely wiping out Israel, but preserving that next generation hoping, as it were, that they would continue in faith in Him and take possession of the land. And that is where we arrive here today in the book of Deuteronomy. God's people, Israel, standing on the banks of the Jordan, about to cross over into the land that God had promised him. And here, through His servant Moses, God both renews His covenant with Israel reminding them of the law that they are to live by and all the blessings of the temple and the sacrifices and how they are to live with one another. And Moses is here giving these final three sermons because he, because of his own sinfulness, which we'll talk more about next week, is not permitted to go into the promised land. He preaches to this people that he has led and gives them a final word of warning and encouragement. If you obey the Lord your God, if you fulfill the covenant, your life will be long in the land. But if you disobey... If you break God's covenant, you will be removed from the land. And it will not be the blessings of God, but the judgment of God that will come upon you. All the while in this, Moses is teaching the people. He is showing them and reminding them, this is how the people of God live. This is how the people who claim to worship the one true living God, this is how they live with one another and before the nations. And so this morning as we look to a very specific passage in Deuteronomy 6, we see here themes that are expressed throughout the entirety of the book of Deuteronomy. And so what you will have this morning is a broad framework for when you yourselves go and read the book of Deuteronomy in which to understand and have the, the, the different laws and things cohere together in your mind. But more importantly, what we see here is in these directives for how God's people are to live, we see that these, these same directives extend to us today as the new covenant people of God. So let me read for you Deuteronomy 6, and I would encourage you to follow along as I read. Now this is the commandment. The statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. May God bless the reading of His Word. Three things that we see this morning, three broad directives. The first of which is this. As God's people, you are, we are, to love the Lord completely. Love the Lord completely. Moses again says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These verses comprise a summary of all that God's people believed and all that they were to do in living out that belief. In fact, so important was this statement that became very much a creedal statement for Israel. If, the, if you were to ask them, uh, you know, some, some Canaanites, so, so what are you guys all about? They would say, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, we shall love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and might. To this day, pious Jews will take this little bit of scripture written in Hebrew and they will roll it up as a little scroll and keep it in a box. They will actually put it on the door frame of their house so that by the going in and the coming out, as they, as they, they touch that box, they will be reminded, this is what their life is about. But what does it mean? What does it mean to say, the Lord our God, the Lord is one? Well, at the very least, it means these two things. The Lord is both unified and unique. He is unified. The Lord is one. That is to say, He is not duplicitous, two-faced, nor is He capricious, changing His mind on a whim. In other words, He is not like us. God exists with unified purpose and spirit. He will always be who He is, and He will always act according to His character. In that sense, again, He is not like us, and He stands transcendent above all of creation. The Lord is one, and He will not change. Therefore, when God says, I am perfectly holy and righteous and good and just, there is never cause for concern that God will one day say, I'm tired of acting that way. I'm done. I'm, I'm putting on the leather jacket, as it were, kicking my feet up on the desk, and I'm just going to start knocking humans off for no apparent reason whatsoever than the fact that it's fun. God's not going to do that. God will not do that. He says, this is who I am in my person, in my being, in my character, and I am one. I am unified in that. I do not change. But more than that, God is also unique. There are no other gods. Yahweh, the Lord, is not just first among the gods. He is the only true and living God. All others are simply idols, either made with human hands or conceived of in the human mind. And so what was true in reality, that the Lord was unique, that should also be true in the life of Israel. There were to be no other gods worshipped among the people of the Lord. He alone was to be their God. And what flows out of that belief about God is a life lived in light of God. If that is who God is, what is our response? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, frankly, we, the English language is interesting. I, have, I, I had many friends who did not speak English as their native language uh, when I was at seminary. And the thing that I heard over and over again was more or less, English is kind of messy. I mean, we have lots of these rules, and then we break the rules. 
It's very, I mean, you know, for those of us that are naturally born English speakers, we don't, we don't think anything about it. We just pick these things up. But have you ever listened to your kids trying to learn past tense? And, and suddenly you realize, oh, you don't just put the ED on the end, you change the whole word. It's something else. And they're thinking, why? Everything else is ED, right? Well, think about love. We have one word, love. And yet, what can I say? I love a good bacon double cheeseburger. I love my wife. Now, I better mean two different things in that sentence, shouldn't I? Right? Yes? Yes? Is, is the day getting too long here? Right? We should mean two different things. And men, you know this. We better mean two different things when we say that. So, so what does the Bible mean when it says, when it, we are commanded, love the Lord your God? What, what does that mean? Is it, I will say this, it's not just emotion. It's not just that teeny bopper phase in our life when, oh, we, we just love them with all of our heart. We love them so much. No, it's more than that. It's not just that kind of emotional response. It goes much deeper than that. And we know that because God says we are, we are to love Him with all of our mind and soul and might. He is, he is defining the parameters upon which our love should exist. The heart is not, again, we, you know, we say we love that with all our heart. We really mean the, the affections. And affections are good. Emotion is good. We should not simply but stand back and say, I love the Lord my God. That's not it. It's, I love the Lord my God. And yet, it, it, the heart in the Hebrew mind is more than that. It's almost synonymous with the mind. It's one of a person's entire personality and the way that they think and live and feel. The soul that is spoken of here is that spiritual essence of a person. Their inner being, their will and their character. And their might is the physical side of a person, his or her strength. So then loving God is not just an emotion, it's a way of life. To love the Lord your God with all one's heart, soul, and might means to love Him with every facet of your being, with the full measure of your intensity. Nothing is held back in the pursuit of loving God and loving Him alone. And sometimes as we stand looking at the old covenant versus us now in the new covenant in Christ, there are some laws, in fact all of the law has come to its fulfillment in Christ. And some of those have been abrogated in the sense that we don't need to literally fulfill what is said. We just need to figure out and fulfill the underlying principle. But here is a command where word for word transfers from the old to the new. Why? Because Jesus said this is what we're supposed to do. He's asked, what's the most important thing of all? And he says, this. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. There are no other gods. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and might. And I suspect if we asked all of you here in this, in this room and that anyone who would claim the name of Christ, claim to be a Christian, do you love God? The resounding answer would be yes. But is this the way we love God? Do we love Him with all of our heart, soul, and might? The reality is, I think for most of us, and I mean us, the answer is no, we do not love the Lord God this way. Most of us have other things that we give our love and worship to. We love God, but it's a love of convenience. God isn't our first priority. He's just someone that we can easily love when it doesn't conflict with other things in our life. How can I prove that to you? Think about this. Right now, I want you to think about one thing in your life that you realize you could just not live without. If somehow it were to be gone, if God were to take it, it would be such a devastating loss that you literally would not know how you're going to get up the next morning. You literally would think about, contemplate losing your life. I just I can't live without that thing, whatever it is. That's an idol. You, you've just, whatever has sprung into your mind is an idol that's in your life. 
Was it your family, your wife or your kids? Was it your job? Was it money? Was it self-respect? Was it something? It could be anything. Whatever it was, it was an idol that stands between us and having God as first in our life. Moses instructs the people in this book that there can be no place for anything besides God holding the first place in our life. And you say, isn't that hard? Of course it's hard because we're sinful by nature. But here's, the, here's what makes it easier. If we really knew God as He is, if we really knew God as He reveals Himself in His Word, we would not feel the need nearly as much to have other things in our life to worship. This is why Moses is constantly telling the people in this book, remember the Lord your God. Remember who He is and what He has done. When you read throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you find Moses again and again warning the people against sin. Don't stop loving God. Don't go worshiping other gods. Don't go breaking the law. Don't, don't do anything that God has not told you to do. And to buttress them against that temptation to go do all those things he's telling them not to do, he says, remember the Lord your God. The way to buttress yourself in the life of faith so that nothing else takes the place of worship that rightly belongs to God, is to remember who He is and what He has done, both in your life and in the lives of others. So He tells them, remember, remember the salvation God gave you from Egypt. Remember His preservation of you in the wilderness. Remember His commitment to love you and shepherd you as His people. In other words, remember His grace. You say, why is that grace? Well, because did Israel deserve any of that? No. In fact, what does God say later in the prophets? He says, you were the least among all the nations. He says, when I found you, you were like a newborn baby whose mom had thrown in the gutter. You were dirty, you were filthy, but I had mercy on you. I picked you up and I cleaned you off. I adopted you as my own and set my affection upon you. For no other reason other than that, I decided to love you. That's grace. That's grace. And God says, remember that, O Israel. Remember that when you think you need this bail to give you prosperity. Remember, I am the Lord your God who loved you. When you think that you're not going to be able to have kids unless you make an offering to this fertility God. Remember, I am the Lord who God. I am the Lord God who loves you. And likewise today, we who live on this side of the cross, we look back to Christ. And we say, O oh soul, remember the God who loves you. Remember the God who purposed in his heart for no other reason than to love you, to send Christ to die in your place as an atoning sacrifice, fulfilling his righteous wrath for your sin. Remember a God who commits to love us and to shepherd us and to provide for us all the days of our life. In the end, we love God the way Moses calls Israel to love God because God has first loved us. Isn't that what the Apostle John says later in his first letter to the churches? We remember the great grace and mercy that God has shown us. And the response is, I love him back. But what does that love look like? I mean, we've just said, it's the totality of your life. It's him being first. You hold nothing back. But this afternoon, what does that mean practically? What will that look like in your life? Next week, what, what does that look like specifically? We may not know, but 
But Moses tells us very specifically, it means at least one thing, and that is obeying God with reverent fear. Obeying God with reverent fear. This is the second thing that we see this morning. We are to love the Lord completely. We are also to obey His word fearfully. Obey the word fearfully. You know, recently, um, Dan Brown has another book that has come out as a major feature film. You will remember Dan Brown was the man who wrote The Da Vinci Code. And here just recently in the last week or two, another of his books has been turned into a movie and released called Angels and Demons. And if you read the summary about the plot and everything else, you realize it's very similar to The Da Vinci Code in the sense that uh, he trashes Christianity, specifically uh, the, the, the Catholic brand, if, if, I can, if I can speak that way, of of Christianity. We are shown to be purveyors of half-truths and outright, outright lies that we know are wrong, but we cover up to make the masses happy. It's not a real flattering portrayal for, for Christianity. But the interesting thing is that while Dan Brown will completely dismantle the Christian faith and essentially say it's absolutely ludicrous for anyone to actually believe it, I bear no malice against individual Christians. It's okay. I still respect you. Go on believing whatever you want. See if there's a problem there? It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't quite go together, except in 21st century America. And surprisingly enough, there was an article in the New York Times, an, an op-ed piece, that, that picked up on, this, on the essence of basically saying Dan Brown's books and movies epitomize the mindset about religion and spirituality in America. Here's what the author is, uh, Russ Duthots, and here's what he says. In Dan Brown's mind, all religions, even Roman Catholicism, have the potential to be wonderful so long as we can get over the idea that any one of them might be particularly true. It's a message perfectly tailored for 21st century America where the most important religious trend is neither swelling unbelief nor rising fundamentalism, but the emergence of a generalized religiousness detached from the claims of any specific faith tradition. I mean, that's it, isn't it? I mean, he, he hits the nail on the head, one shot, it's all the way in. He gets it. In, in America, we like our religion like our burgers. Yes, I'll take the ketchup and the lettuce, but hold the mustard and the pickle, please. Right? I, I, I like the hope and the positive attitude and, and, the, and the nice God doing things for me, uh, spitting out grace like a broken candy machine. Nevertheless, don't you dare ask me to bow the knee to a sovereign God. Don't talk to me about a God who is so wrathful towards my sin that his son has to die in my place. Don't talk to me about a God who might actually ask me to give some of my money over to the church for the cause of missions around the world. Don't, don't talk to me about a God who might actually call me to sacrifice and go myself, not to Africa, but across the street to tell my neighbor about Jesus. I don't want to hear about that kind of a God. Just give me the other stuff. But that's the farthest thing from what you see in the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, Moses goes out of his way to say, God's people live according to God's word. In the words of Jesus, every jot and tittle of it. Moses goes out of his way to say over and over again, listen to what God says, understand what God says, and do what God says. Don't add anything to it, don't change anything in it, and don't leave anything out of it. In fact, Moses, looking forward, of course, obviously, through the superintention of God, looking forward and saying, one day there is going to be a king over you. That king's first responsibility before he does anything else, he'll receive God's spiritual anointing. He will then be enthroned before the people. And the very first thing he does after the celebration, he calls for the priests who bring the book of the law out. 
and they sit it on the desk of the king. And then someone else comes and brings him a blank scroll with ink and quill. And the king opens up to page one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he takes out his quill and he writes, because they're Hebrew, they write backwards. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And line after line, verse after verse, chapter after chapter, the king reads the word and writes his own copy of the word. Why? Why would God have him do that? Because Israel was never a monarchy, even when they had a king. They were always a theocracy. God was their king. And that king was not to make judgment or policy or treaty or rule apart from the word of God. He was simply the mediator of God's reign on the earth. All of God's people were to follow all of God's commands. And so back in verse 1 of this, of this very chapter, what does Moses say? This is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his commands and statutes, which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. In terms of the covenant, Moses reminds the people, look, you keep God's word, do what he asks you to do, things will go great. You will live a long life in the land, a long prosperous life. But if you fail to do the word, you can expect God's judgment and his wrath and the cursings that he has promised will come through the covenant. But understand that this obedience to God's word is more than just about maintaining the covenant. It's more than just about externals. God wanted from them the same thing he wants from us. Not a slavish obedience that comes from a desire to not be blown up by lightning bolts thrown from an angry God in the sky, but rather a deep, heartfelt obedience that flows from an understanding of who God is and the grace he's shown to us. Our obedience, just like theirs, was to flow out of our love for God. And in fact, as you read chapter after chapter after chapter, you quickly realize that this command to love the Lord your God is central to the book of Deuteronomy. Every verse, every command, every instruction, every law in a real sense is simply a commentary on the command, love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. How? By doing this and by doing this and by doing this and by doing this. Not do this so God will love you. No. God has loved you. You are to love him. And this is how you show that love to him. Isn't that what Jesus said? So, so, so often we say, well, I, you know, I, just, I just love Jesus. Well, that's great. I'm glad you do. How do you know you love Jesus? Well, I, I, I just do. Well, you know, Jesus gave us a little better test than just I do. He said to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And don't mix the order up. Don't mix the order up. Not, okay, if I keep the commandments, then God will love me. No, 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 no. No, he's already loved you. He's already given you grace. Your response is to love him, and you love him by your obedience. This is why, this is why Moses says that we are too unite our obedience with a fear of the Lord. It says, this is the commandment. The statutes and the rules of the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them, that you may fear the Lord your God. This biblical fear is the opposite of the kind of fear that says, I better, I better do what God wants or he's going to blast me. If I don't do what God wants, he's not going to love me. That's not biblical fear. 
Biblical fear is not cowering in a corner. Instead, it's a positive quality of reverence, of knowing God well in all of His glory. And some will say, why don't we just use the word reverence? Well, that's a good question. The problem is it lacks that certain edge that the word fear still conveys. Because part of fearing God is not just revering Him, it's remembering who you are in light of who God is. He is the one who has created all things, not you. He is the sovereign over all things, not you. And so we don't go in like the whiny bratty kid who thinks that he rules the house and that the parents bow to him when we go to God. No, 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 no. No. He is our heavenly father, but he is also the Lord God Almighty. And intimacy will turn into mush if we don't maintain the reality that he is our heavenly father. He is the sovereign who invites us to have a relationship with him, not one that is demanded upon us or that we demand, rather, upon Him. Therefore, the great Puritan preacher in the 17th century, John Owen, says the kind of fear that is talked about here is the kind of fear which keeps from sin and at the same time excites the soul to cleave more firmly to God. It is no servile fear, but a holy fear and due reverence unto God and His Word. That's the kind of attitude that we come with before God's word as God's people. This is the Almighty who created all things by the word of His power. This is the Savior who redeemed us by the blood of His Son and His grace. Who am I not to obey His word? Who am I not to read His word, to meditate on it, to even hide it in my heart by memorizing it? It was said of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon that he was so full of God's word that if you were to prick him anywhere in his body, he would bleed the Bible. I, I, I like that. I like that imagery. But I, I, frankly, I fear what would happen if you pricked me the same way. What would come out of you? Would it be movies? Would it be sports? Would it be politics? What would come out? You know, just the other week, I was, I was very encouraged to hear about one of the men in our church who was reading the Bible and was extremely excited about it. In fact, he was so excited, it almost scared his wife. And, I, and the reason why that encouraged me is because I said to myself, that is a man after God's own heart. Why? Because Jesus was a man of the book. Jesus loved God's word. He read it. He memorized it. He talked about it with friends. He taught God's people. He fought off temptation with it. Oddly enough, he only quoted from Deuteronomy in doing all of that. And one of the marks of God's people, both in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, is that they are a people of the book. They hear and obey God's word with a loving, holy, reverential fear. But you know, it's not enough for us to have a personal walk with God. I know we stress that in our country. And that was a reaction to some other things, to, to vague, empty religion that went under the guise of Christianity to say, no, 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 but do you know God personally? And that's good and right. But as Christians, we have a further obligation to not just know the word ourselves, but to pass it on to the next generation. This is why Moses gives us the third instruction for us on how we are to live as God's people. We are to teach our children diligently. Teach your children diligently. I'm not a big statistics guy, but let me give you some statistics to help bring clarity to the issue here. A few years ago, Glenn Schultz did some statistical work and determined that about 
75% of our young people leave church by the end of their freshman year in college. That's children that have either grown up in the church, who have made professions of faith in church, who've been involved in youth groups and, and, and good, strong, healthy churches. 75% of all young people are gone. Now that sounds amazingly high, doesn't it? Well, our own Southern Baptist Convention did a similar study in 2002 and they found that number to be 88%. It was even higher. 88% of all young people leave growing up in Christian homes and being a part of church leaving by 19 or 20. Do you understand what that means? Do you, do you understand the implications of that? Just, again, let's just think about our own convention. On paper, which we know, you know is probably at least half, I shouldn't say at least, at least three quarters, maybe even as low as half. But on paper, we have 16 million members. If we are losing 88% of our young people, that means the next generation of Southern Baptists will go down to 4 million members. The generation after that will be 1 million members. The fourth generation after that will be 250,000 members. Do you see that Christianity is very possible for it to die out in just four generations in this country? You say, well, well why is that happening? Well, here's another insight. One of our seminary professors, Alvin Reed, who was involved in youth ministry and evangelism, he wrote a book called Raising the Bar. And here's, listen to this statistic. Over the last 30 years, we have seen the largest increase in the number of professional youth ministers, youth ministry degrees being handed out, and parachurch organizations designed to reach youth. And yet we have seen the greatest decline in youth baptisms ever. Did you catch that? The greatest number of youth ministry emphasis, and yet the greatest number of baptisms among youth going down. What is, and we hope baptism is a reflection of salvation. Why are we feeling so bad? I mean, what's our problem in this country? We have all of the great programs. We have all of the great books. We have Christian music. We have a whole industry of Christian music and T-shirts and large national conferences. For Pete's sake, we even have Veggie Tales for our kids, right? How could we be going wrong? We're going wrong because the one thing we lack is the very thing God commands us to do, to have a family-driven faith. Listen to what he says here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your city gates. God's plan is is for children to be taught about the things of God primarily by their parents. There is nothing more effective in raising up children to love and trust God with their lives than by believing parents, showing by example and by specific teaching who God is, why He should be trusted, and what it means to love Him with your life. That is God's first and best plan. That means His first and best plan is not Sunday school, it's not a youth minister, it's not the senior pastor, it's not friends, or books or conferences, all of which are great, and they aid in that process. But the first and primary and best plan for taking the Christian faith from one generation to the next is believing parents who actively teach it to their kids all the time. He says when they're lying down, getting ready to go to bed, when they're rising up in the morning, as they're walking throughout the day, as they're going here, there, and everywhere, you are to be creating a culture, a pervasive attitude within your family that the things of God are regularly talked about and that you are actively seeking to live those things out so that the next generation does not lose the faith, but rather they take it up for themselves. Now my time is almost gone, but... 
I want to say two more things. The first is this. Do not mistake that this is only for the Old Testament. Paul in Ephesians 6 says, This command still carries today. This is still God's plan for His people. And here's the second thing that I want to say. It is true that the ordinary way things work in God's universe is such that if you teach the children, they will learn it, they will know it, they will embrace it. Proverbs 22, ring 6, as a proverb. That is a generally true statement about the way things work in God's universe. Raise up a child the way he should go, and when he gets old, he will not depart from it. Nevertheless, nevertheless, it's not a promise, and it doesn't always happen. So you could be a parent who did everything you possibly could that you knew to be right to pass on your faith to the next generation, and they've balked at it. And they've said, no, thank you, and they've walked away. Let me just say, do not bear the weight of that guilt and burden on your shoulders. If under God you did what you were called to do, what you knew best to do, and they still rejected it, guess what? That's between them and God. That doesn't mean you failed as a parent, and you should not feel the undue weight of guilt and burden for that. Nevertheless, some of you sitting here as well are hearing these verses and hearing this, and internally you may be in great pain and weeping because you look back and you say, I didn't do any of that. I I didn't even know to do that. Nobody was doing that. And to you, let me say two things. First of all, all sin is forgivable. For the most presumptive, willful transgressions of God's will to even the innocent, unknowingly, the unknowing failures to do what God actually requires of us. All sin is forgivable. The day you placed your faith in Christ, God reckoned you clean and forgiven and guilt-free in His Son. The debt of your sin was considered paid on the cross for past, present, and future sins. There's nothing that God holds against you in that way. And at the same time, let me say this. God is still sovereign. Don't think for a minute that you missed your chance to raise your kid to fear God while they were in your home. And now that they're gone, there's no hope. Friends, we, we worship the God of hope. What does David say? Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. He is the God of hope. So even if your children are gone, they're out of the house, they're older, you're saying, I missed my opportunity. Fine, you missed that opportunity. Take the one that's there with you now. Begin by you yourself loving the Lord your God with all of your soul and all of your might. Show them an example to follow. Show them a person whose life is unwaveringly committed to God and God alone. And then open your mouth and speak. Speak of the one you love. Tell them just simply the things that you're learning in the Bible, the things that you're learning from, from in your interaction with other Christians. Tell them the truth that living the Christian life is hard, but the rewards are worth it. Tell them amazing stories of answered prayer. Tell them with love and hope and fear in your voice how amazingly big and glorious the Almighty God is. And then pray. Pray to that mighty God that you love and ask Him to do a work in the heart of your wayward children. Pray that God would use the truth that you are actively sharing and the love you're seeking to show them to do a work in their heart to to break up that rocky soil and to draw them to Himself. Loved ones, this is God's solution for keeping faith in Him alive from generation to generation to generation. And as God's people called out of this world to live according to God's way, we must be diligent to teach our children about God. We must be diligent to teach them how to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and might. As we seek to live as God's people, we must love the Lord completely, fear, obey the word fearfully, 
and teach our children diligently. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word, which, Father, allows us to know perfectly your will and desires for our life. Father, we pray this morning that you will have both convicted us of our failings, but also encourage us to better diligence and seeking to love and honor you with our lives. Father, as our earnest prayer and desire this morning that you would be at work drawing us close to yourself, perhaps those that heard the gospel for the first time, that Christ saved sinners by his death. Father, that you would provoke faith in them. But Father, for the rest of us that have known and long cherished that gospel truth, that you would continue to grow faith in us, to trust you, to trust that when you tell us in your word how to live, that that is not only right and good and honoring you, but it will bring us the most joy. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.